This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the North Face and its new jacket, the Apex Flex GTX. The Gore-Tex jacket is so comfortable and well-made, it may very well change the way you think about the rain. Today, I want to think a little bit differently about the sound of rain. And not even the sound of rain itself, but the sounds the rain makes possible. This is the sound of Sugarloaf State Park from a recording made by Bernie Krauss near Sonoma, California, back in 2004. You can hear the calls of brewer's sparrows, acorn woodpeckers, black-headed grosbeaks, and deep in the background, there's a running stream. Here's the same park, same place, same time of day, recorded with the same equipment, the same settings in 2009, as California was entering a drought. Then the drought continued through 2014, By 2015, the sound of running water was completely gone, and with it, most of the bird song. No sparrows, no grouse beaks, just some towhees, juncos, and white-breasted nuthatches. In total, the drought reduced bird song at Sugarloaf by a factor of five. Bernie Krauss published a paper on ecoacoustics last year, which included the data gathered at Sugarloaf. But then, this winter, it started to rain. In fact, this winter was so wet, and California is currently so green, that a few days ago I called them up to see if the birds were back. But they weren't. We don't know how long it will take them to return. All we know is that if it keeps raining, they'll probably find their way. And with the North Face's new jacket, the Apex Flex GTX, you'll be able to stay out until they do. Hey everybody, before we get going here, I have a favor to ask. The Outside Podcast just turned a year old, and in that time, we've tried a bunch of different formats and types of episodes. We've got this survival series, Double X Factor, interviews, dispatches. We've sort of been throwing stuff at the wall. And so now, as we go into year two, we need some feedback. What do you want to hear more of? Less of? What do you like about the show? What should we stop doing? So we made a survey, and it takes about two minutes It's at surveynerds.com slash outside. If you're at your computer right now, you can just enter the URL and start it. If you're on your phone, you can actually do the same thing. Surveynerds.com slash outside and tell us what you think. It'll help us out a lot. So thank you. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. Brian and John had it all figured out, and it was going to be perfect. I can't believe like we're leading this off because this is the dumbest story ever. I, I don't even know how it's possible. I'm not one to really believe in like spiritual things or stuff like that, you know. I, but I, I mean, I swear it actually happened. <laughs> That's John Gugela, former associate editor of Outside's Buyer's Guide. And this, okay, it's a dumb story, but it's dumb in a way that you can probably relate to. It starts last year, when John and Outside's video production manager, Brian Regala, saw a massive monster El Nino headed their way, ready to drop heaps of snow on them for months. It was shaping up to be the kind of winter you quit your job for. 
but Brian and John liked their jobs, so instead they rearranged the rest of their lives. They bought season passes at Taos, the best resort in New Mexico. Brian got big new powder skis, and they booked a ski cabin, not for the weekend, but for five weekends in a row. From mid-February to mid-March, that's going to be the wettest part of the season in what should be already an epic season. We were just convinced that the snow was going to be um, spectacular as it had been the year before. This is Brian Regala. Of course, as luck would have it, it turned out that the, the moment we, we got that rental, um, it stopped snowing. And then it, uh, it did not snow for the next five weeks. It was just bone dry, a classic, like a very, very, an, an incredible early season. And then just nothing. It stayed that way for basically the rest of the winter. And because of their non-refundable deposit, they skied a lot of ice that year. It sucked. Until the night before their last ski day, when they were in town waiting for a pizza. And they decided to take action. Uh, John and I decided that we should do a snow dance of sorts. Brian and I are super into Taylor Swift because she's a great songwriter. She's an American treasure. Yeah, and we uh, we decide. Okay, so Taylor Swift's uh, "Shake It Off." I have the you know 1989 record on my phone. John pulled the song up on his phone, and uh, for the entire you know three minutes and 45 seconds or whatever it is of that song, uh, we danced around in a circle in a snow dance to Taylor Swift's "Shake It Off." It wasn't great dancing. It wasn't uh, choreographed. I'll say that. Imagine like Seinfeld dancing to Taylor Swift, and that's probably pretty close to, to accurate. You know, you're hopping from foot to foot and you know spinning in circles. And I kid you not, right towards the end of the song, it started to snow, and we got five inches of fresh snow by the next morning. As you might imagine, they went up and packed five weekends worth of skiing into one day. When the lift access runs were tracked out, they hiked to side country powder stashes, all the while contemplating the intersection of meteorology and pop music. Just hiking to with your, your board or your skis um, over your shoulder, wondering, you know, who has bestowed upon you this great gift and how exactly you get through to Taylor Swift to thank her for it. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, though, the idea of a pop star being in control of the weather, and I can't believe I'm saying this, it's not quite as dumb as it sounds, because we actually figured out the basics of weather control about 70 years ago, and it's not that hard. It's also cheap enough that the Taylor Swifts of the world could theoretically pay for a little extra snowfall at their favorite resort if they wanted to. And now, as we start to talk about mitigating the effects of climate change just as much as preventing them, the idea of manipulating the weather is back on the table. Today on The Science of Survival, we're talking macro-level, long-term survival of the human race, and how the past, present, and future of weather modification and geoengineering plays a part. I'm your host, Peter Frickwright, and we're going to start in the past, because in order to understand our current and future relationship with the idea of controlling the weather, you first have to understand that the weather used to be the realm of the gods. 
All over the world, different cultures had rain dances, rituals, and songs that either tried to get the storm deities to go easy or tried to bring the rain back when it was too dry. For a surprisingly long time, the weather was a complete unknown. We had no way of knowing what was going on on the other side of the mountain range or in the next valley. It wasn't until the 1830s and 40s, when Morse code and the telegraph made it possible to communicate over long distances, that people were even able to get a picture of what the surrounding weather was like and what might be headed their way. And that's roughly when attempts to predict and control the weather became less superstitious and more scientific. In 1840, American meteorologist James Espy wrote a book called The Philosophy of Storms, which contained a theory for how rain formed. His basically sound theory that got him a lot of fame was that heated air rises and rising air cools and cooling air condenses and the condensation falls as rain. That's Professor Jim Fleming of Colby College and author of Fixing the Sky about the history of weather control. And then he got this idea that he could make it rain even more by cutting large woodlots down the crest of the Appalachians from, from Maine to Georgia. The idea was that Espy would light the forests on fire. The heat would rise and then cool. And as it cooled, it would condense, forming rain. Kind of like condensation on an air conditioner. He was trying to mimic the effects of a volcano, essentially. A volcano that would give the people of Appalachia steady, predictable rain every Sunday. And so the people could go to church, and they could have the picnic, and then they could have their Sunday evening rain, and they'd be ready with a fresh atmosphere on Monday morning. It was a crazy idea. But Espy was so well-respected as a scientist that he got the support of a senator from Pennsylvania. But that's as far as it went. The rest of the Senate said it was too dangerous for one person to control the weather. And because the difference between genius and madness is largely success, this failure ruined Espy. So they started to call Espy the Rain King, and they started to make fun of him. And he lost a lot of his uh, scientific uh, reputation because of that. What Espy got right was the basics of why it rains. But that's a different thing than being able to control the process. Still, the fact that someone smart had said they could make it rain gave the idea a lot of credibility, which a lot of other people saw as an opportunity to make a buck. Well, they, they began with the, uh, the Western state fairs, and the rainmaker would show up, and the rainmaker would uh, collect um, payments from farmers by the inch of rain that they caused. So if you do it and you're persistent enough, you'll get some rain and then you could collect some of that money. In fact, throughout the 20th century, scientific breakthroughs repeatedly enabled con men to cash in on rainmaking. Take, for example, a story that Jim Fleming called A Tale of Two Irvings. The first Irving is Irving Crick, a kind of forefather to the charismatic TV weatherman of today. Well, he was kind of, of a celebrity. He was uh, kind of a Hollywood-type... Um, talker. He was very uh, handsome and well-groomed and, and rising star in, uh, <clears throat> in academia, but he had taken on uh, movie contracts. He would do forecasts for uh, major Hollywood uh, enterprises because they had to, sometimes they had to go out and they had to film outside. And like a lot of movie people, he made a point of telling folks what they wanted to hear, which in Los Angeles usually worked out. You know, it never rains in Southern California. <laughs> He made his name on the set of Gone with the Wind, forecasting the weather for when to shoot the burning of Atlanta. And he got the forecast right, and, the, and they took it in one take because they had to burn down the whole set to film it. <laughs> and uh, he became pretty famous. 
Crick finessed that fame into a high-level gig with the U.S. military when World War II broke out. But when he was asked to help pick the day to invade Normandy, he screwed it up. He called D-Day a day early. The surf would have been too high, the boats would have been swamped, and Crick would have been completely wrong. Thankfully, other meteorologists got it right. Crick was pretty much done in the military after that. But at almost the exact same time, General Electric made a scientific breakthrough that opened the door for Crick's third career. It was a rainmaker. In November 1946, one of GE's chemists discovered how to increase precipitation in clouds by adding silver iodide, a hexagonal molecule that mimics the shape of a snowflake and makes other water molecules form up with it. It gets into the cloud and tricks the cloud to thinking that it has ice in it, and then it makes more ice. It starts to pile up its ice molecules or ice particles on top of this silver iodide molecule. And so if the conditions are right, you can trick a cloud into what's called glaciation, turning it into a snow cloud. The discovery was made by Bernard Vonnegut, the older brother of Kurt Vonnegut, who would write about a chemical that froze all water it touched, called Ice-9, in the book Cat's Cradle. Anyway, Bernard's work was then picked up by two more GE chemists, Vincent Schaefer and Irving Langmuir. Irving Langmuir is the other Irving in this story, and he was brilliant. By the time Vonnegut made his discovery, Langmuir had already won a Nobel Prize in chemistry and been invited to work on the Manhattan Project, developing the atom bomb, but declined. So Langmuir always had this sense that I could have been a bomb scientist, I could have been a little more famous than I am right now. In the 40s and 50s, the final years of his life, Langmuir became obsessed with cloud seeding and the idea of weather modification. It was his chance at scientific immortality, but he couldn't pursue it. GE was too worried about the liability of trying to control the weather. And with good reason, it turned out. In 1947, Langmuir was advising the military on an experiment in which they dumped a bunch of dry ice into Hurricane King as it was headed out to sea off the coast of Florida. Basically, they just wanted to see what would happen. As soon as they did that, however, it changed course, turned north, and caused a bunch of damage in Georgia. That's when Langmuir began to jump on the idea that he had uh, influenced the direction of the storm and could start to control storms. We know now that it was just a coincidence but the Air Force got freaked out. They had had plans to go public with the whole program, but instead made it top secret, called it Project Storm Fury. I didn't find it till 1979, so it was embargoed for about um, uh, 30 years. Langmuir, meanwhile, was convinced that he was onto something, but he just wasn't, and he couldn't let it go. Like James Espy trying to light fires on the tops of mountains in Appalachia, Langmuir never recovered his scientific reputation. Langmuir was barking mad. He was a, a very good scientist in his own way, in, especially in his younger years and in his middle age, but he really went over the edge. Irving Crick, on the other hand, the scarf-wearing, smooth-talking weatherman who'd gotten the D-Day forecast wrong, he took GE's announcement about silver iodide, and he went out and sold it. He, he developed a company called Crick & Associates, Uh, selling rain on the Great Plains and putting farmers under uh, what's called cloud seeding regimes. And if it does rain somewhere, he would claim responsibility. And so Crick's strategy was to make a very large array of cloud seeding because he knew that within a couple hundred square miles of cloud seeding, there would be some rain. When you look back at history, Fleming says, there are two kinds of people who get involved in weather modification. Two Irvings, you might say. One was the sincere but 
deluded scientists who had one simple theory, and the other was the pure charlatan who wanted to take advantage of gullible people. And because of these two categories from history, most people seem to think that weather modification doesn't work, that it's just the realm of con men and science fiction. But it's not. We're using silver iodide right now, and it's working. All right, well, the Desert Research Institute cloud seeding generators are these steel boxes, so everything's fully enclosed. We have containers uh, that contain the cloud seeding solution, which is a silver iodide-based molecule, and then we burn the silver iodide with uh, propane flame. So the idea is to create a smoke of silver iodide. So This is Frank McDonough, research scientist, cloud physicist, and also the lead on the cloud seeding program at the Desert Research Institute. And the goal is to add to the snowpack and then add to the subsequent runoff. Right now, despite the fact that no one really knows or talks about it, there are a handful of cloud seeding projects scattered across the American West, and then a bunch in California. Probably 20 overall. Santa Barbara County has actually been seeding its clouds with silver iodide for decades. Los Angeles restarted its cloud seeding program last year. McDonough's company, Desert Research Institute, oversees some of these projects. And unlike Crick, who just sort of sprinkled silver iodide through the atmosphere and hoped for the best, McDonough targets specific storms and turns on the generators at just the right time. The generators are these eight-foot boxes with a solar panel and a satellite modem so that they can be operated by remote control. And they're built on a trailer so they can just move them around. And then on top of the trailer, there's a tower that goes up about... I'd say, you know, maybe 15, 20 feet. The Sierra Nevada, we get a lot of snow. And these things are designed to go out in the mountains and sit out there all winter. With current forecasting technologies, when the clouds roll in, McDonough can tell when they're ripe to be seeded and when they're not. When they are, they turn on the generators, burn some silver iodide, and that plume covers an area 5 miles wide and 10 miles long. It actually works. Or at least it really seems like it does. It's very hard to tell because you can't measure the same storm with and without silver iodide. So you have to measure the precipitation in storms you seed versus storms you don't, and then repeat that process enough times that the averages start to tell the story. And what seems to be emerging from the data is that cloud seeding yields a 5 to 15% increase in precipitation. One career weather scientist I talked to said he's 80% confident that it works. So that's a B- for cloud seeding. Usually cloud seeding comes up when there's a drought. That's, you know, that's when people become interested in this. But it really should be thought of as a long-term water management strategy. The idea is you can add about 10% more snowfall to the watershed over the winter season. Maybe the science would be stronger if there's more money at stake. But cloud seeding is really, really cheap. No one officially keeps track of this stuff. But two back-of-the-napkin estimates I got put the total amount spent on cloud seeding in the U.S. between 10 and $15 million. That's essentially a rounding error for an economy like California's. And for that, they get a tiny insurance policy against drought in certain places. The only downside is that you're putting silver iodide particles into the air. But so far, there aren't any studies showing negative environmental consequences. In fact, there's already enough pollution in a lot of these clouds that silver iodide might just be another drop in the bucket. Or reservoir. Either way, it's a good thing, because research from 2004 showed that air pollution actually suppresses precipitation in clouds. Think of it like this. Bigger, heavier raindrops fall out of clouds more easily, 
and every raindrop has a speck of dust or smoke at its center. That's what the water vapor bonds with. The more smoke or dust in a rain cloud, the smaller each individual drop is going to be, and the less likely to fall out of a cloud. To put this another way, clean clouds carry big fat raindrops because there's not that much dust and smoke to cling to. Meanwhile, polluted clouds are full of tiny raindrops that might not ever get heavy enough to fall out. Clean clouds have on the order of about 50 to 80 to maybe 100 droplets per cubic centimeter. In a polluted cloud, you see more like three to 400 droplets in the cubic centimeter. The droplets grow much more slowly. They end up staying really small. They just float with the cloud, and then they tend to, to go right over the Sierra Crest and evaporate on the east side without ever causing any precipitation. The research on this, which looked at California and Israel, showed precipitation suppression of 15 to 25 percent downwind of major metropolitan areas. So, in a sense, the best-case scenario is that the 5 to 15 percent benefit of modern cloud seeding just barely offsets the rain we lose to pollution. In some ways, the cloud seeding maybe is helping to get us back to where maybe these clouds would behave in a more natural state without the human introduced pollutants in the clouds. You know, at the, at the beginning, uh, you know, I've kind of been looking at the, at the history of, of cloud seeding. And at the beginning, there was kind of this idea of like, okay, humans can control the weather. And the thinkers were going, getting ahead of themselves and saying like, we'll live in a world where we just dial up the weather that we want. But that hasn't really happened. And I'm curious, like, why not, in your opinion? To really control the weather, the sun controls the weather, and the weather's driven by the differential heating between the equator and the poles, and that's massive amounts of energy. Nobody can control that kind of weather. Which brings us to the future. Because when McDonough says that you can't control the sun, many scientists would simply respond, we can't control it yet. You know, the climate models say it will basically work. And and also the evidence of, from these big volcanic eruptions also say it, it would basically work. And so the basic idea would be simply to put a bunch of sulfur dioxide or similar gas in the stratosphere, let it oxidize to form tiny particles that reflect sunlight away. This is Ken Caldera from the Carnegie Global Ecology Lab. He's a climate scientist and was originally a strong critic of trying to manipulate our atmosphere. I got into this business trying to show that this was a bad idea and wouldn't work and all that. But like a lot of other scientists, as he got into the data and started running models, Caldera started seeing a way that by blocking sunlight in the upper atmosphere, we could actually maybe kind of nudge the weather toward doing what we want. If you have one little particle in the stratosphere that little particle can reflect away billions of photons coming in from the sun. It's not a new idea. It was first proposed about 30 years ago. And in 1991, a volcano in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo, did a sort of test run for us. It put roughly the same amount of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere that we'd see in a full-blown geoengineering effort. And there didn't seem to be any crazy negative consequences to our weather patterns. You know, there was no big changes in crop prices and there weren't massive famines that year or anything. So in fact, a lot of very well-respected scientists from highfalutin universities are saying that geoengineering is maybe sort of a pretty good method for mitigating the effects of climate change. 
Lowering the Earth's average temperature would probably lessen the power of our increasingly extreme weather. It's worth looking into, anyway. To be clear, at this point, I'm not advocating doing it. What I advocate is that there be a serious research effort, that, that I think that there's enough evidence that it could really reduce environmental risks and human risks by quite a lot. This is David Keith from Harvard. He's been working on climate change for 25 years and comes at it from a bunch of different angles. Cutting emissions, capturing carbon, and, after his initial skepticism, geoengineering. I think it makes sense to have a really broad, open-access, internationalized research effort and a conversation about governance. And then, you know, in a decade, we can get to more serious conversations about whether it makes any sense to do it. And to be clear, this is not rainmaking or even weather modification. It's not a question of altering the fate of a single farmer by changing a few clouds. This is lowering the world's average temperature and changing the fates of whole countries. A lot of weather control inherently has this Rob Peter to pay Paul aspect, whereas climate is really different because you're looking at this kind of long-term average. Think of it like this. The greenhouse effect leads to more extreme weather because it traps more energy in the atmosphere. Geoengineering would simply reduce the energy coming in. They both have the same goal, making better weather, but it's two entirely different mechanisms. The thing is, at the moment, we only know enough about geoengineering to get ourselves into trouble. We don't know the best type of particle to use. We don't know the best delivery mechanisms to get those particles into the upper atmosphere. We don't know exactly how they'll move and spread out once they're up there, or what effect they'll have. If we decide to just guess on all this stuff, we could start geoengineering the planet tomorrow, dropping sulfur dioxide from airplanes. It wouldn't be hard. It would only cost a couple billion dollars a year. Any country that was really feeling the effects of climate change could pull this off. But there might be problems with the water cycle, because we'd be taking away some of the sun's evaporative power. We'd probably make solar power less efficient. Geoengineering also wouldn't do anything about ocean acidification, which is caused by having too much CO2 in the atmosphere. We might also make ourselves dependent on geoengineering. And if we have to suddenly stop diluting the sun, there's a chance the warming process would be more rapid, giving us less time to adapt. Then again, the unmitigated consequences of global warming, they're pretty bad too. Is this something that the uh, environmental community should be, should be wary of, or, or, or is it something that they should embrace? I'd say in between. So I'd say it's something they should take seriously. I think there are absolutely reasons to be uh, concerned about any attempts to, to mess with nature, even if those attempts are really aimed to reduce the impacts of other messing. So um, I wouldn't like it if the environmental community was like wholehearted embrace and advocacy of this. But I think it's something they should take seriously as a kind of central environmental question, a question about what kind of climate we want. We as citizens and people who love the environment, where, where we want it to head. David Keith envisions geoengineering as a stopgap, a way to take the edge off the worst symptoms of climate change. It's a way to make the world just a little bit more livable as we clean up this mess we've made. Others, though, see people like him and Ken Caldera as modern-day James Espies or Irving Langmuirs, scientists blinded by their ambition. I mean, Espy was trying to emulate a volcano, and now the geoengineering crowd is trying to do that again. Jim Fleming, the historian from Colby College, says he sees echoes of the past all the time. This is not uh, ghettoized in history. This is a perennial issue. People still think they can control the weather and the climate. And I'm continually 
giving them these stories about charlatans and sincere but deluded uh, scientists. But it would be a false comparison to say that because SB failed, geoengineering is going to fail too. Our understanding of the weather and atmosphere, and just simply our computing power, makes this an entirely different question. The thing is, it's got the same PR problem. They both seem like meddling in something bigger than we are. Climate change has been called an existential threat. Geoengineering is an existential question about how powerful we think we can be. If someone were to look at your experiment and say, this whole idea of, of geoengineering is sort of humans getting a little bit big for their britches, um, what, what would your response to that be? You know, are, are you trying to play God here? No, I, I'm trying to reduce the human footprint on the natural world. And that's a weird paradox here. So at least my view is that the idea is to reduce the overall human imprint on climate change. And the best way to do that would be if we could sort of magically stop emissions tomorrow and then take all the CO2 out of the atmosphere. But we can't do those things. We, we can stop emissions and we will eventually take CO2 out of the atmosphere, but we might also want to, for a while, reduce the total radio forcing that drives climate change. Uh, and, and so I'd like the climate to be more the way it was before humans messed with it. So I don't regard that as hubristic uh, uh, any more than it would be hubristic to be involved in any other piece of environmental remediation. And I think it's important that people understand in a fundamental way that, that if we want to restore a climate, then just cutting emissions probably doesn't do that. And we need to at least begin to talk in a serious way as environmentalists about the other ways we might intervene. Here's another way to think about what David Keith is saying. Now that we've accidentally changed the climate through pollution, do we now purposefully change the climate through a different, very specific kind of pollution? It's a complicated, emotional question. When people criticize geoengineering, they're often saying that the real problem is that we haven't changed. We still think we're so smart that we can engineer our way out of this, even though we've been repeatedly humbled. The decision right now is whether or not we want to try. Then again, what's the alternative? A snow dance and sacrificing our dignity to Taylor Swift? At this point, all we know for sure is that we made a long-term reservation on this planet, and things aren't going as planned. Thing is, no matter how we respond, no matter what we choose, there still won't be any refunds for bad weather. This piece was written and produced by me, Peter Frickwright. It was edited by Robbie Carver. Thanks to Alan Robach at Rutgers, Scott Braun at NASA, and Don Griffiths at North American Weather Consultants. This episode was made possible by the North Face and its new jacket, the Apex Flex GTX. It'll keep you dry and comfortable no matter how many silver iodide molecules have nucleated in the cloud and formed precipitation that wouldn't have fallen otherwise. Bring it on, scientists. Also, are you guys listening to Human Race? It's a podcast from Runner's World about running, but also about so much more than running. They did a story about the world's longest urinal, which was built for the Boston Marathon, and a piece about a guy who ran along with the Boston Marathon in prison on a treadmill. 
and why he did that. Find it on iTunes and Stitcher and at runnersworld.com audio. Please tell us what you think of the show by taking our survey. It's anonymous, painless, and would help us out a lot. It's at surveynerds.com outside. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance, and efforts at weather control. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week with a new Double X Factor.